I would like to have you take your Bibles and turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation. We've come now to the part of that uh, book that my friend describes as the good part of Revelation, the uh, opening of the seals. I think it's undeniable that everyone in the world recognizes that we are, pro- we are approaching some sort of crisis in history. You see it everywhere, in music, in the media. There's a sense that um, we're at something of a, of a crossroads. We're being drawn irresistibly towards some great cataclysmic event, some crisis. I remember when I was a boy in Texas, um, we would occasionally experience these um, great storms that would sweep down from the north, blue northers, they called them, that uh, were generated in the plains and would sweep through the panhandle of Texas. And uh, before those storms would strike, there would be an almost ominous sense in the air. It seemed that even nature knew that something was going to happen. The birds would stop singing, and, and uh, the world uh, would uh, seem to wait in anticipation for these storms. That's what seems to be happening in the world today. As Joan Baez puts it, we are orphans in an age of no tomorrows. There just doesn't seem to be anything left for us in the future. And it's not merely these momentary crises that we, uh, that we experience. What's happening in Latin America and in Afghanistan? We uh, watch these sort of things with great interest as uh, Poland and Russia play the game of international chicken and these sort of things transpire. But it's not the, the momentary, immediate things. That there seems to be something even greater at work. We're being drawn irresistibly toward some great turning point in history. Now, that, that event is what Scripture describes in a number of places as a time of trouble that immediately precedes the second coming of our Lord Jesus. It's described in various ways in the Bible as the time of Jacob's trouble, as the great tribulation, and as Daniel's seventh week. In, uh, in Daniel's prophecy... In the book of Daniel, which was written back in the 6th century, Daniel was given a vision in which uh, he saw that Israel was the key to everything. Israel is the calendar around which all of God's activities uh, center. And he was told that 490 years were determined for Israel, a period of time that would be divided into two, uh, two segments, one of 483 years and one of seven years. Daniel was told that from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah the Prince would be 483 years. Now, we know that the decree to rebuild Jerusalem went out from, uh, from the Persian kingdom, from Artaxerxes, in 445 B.C. And uh, 483 years later, uh, the Lord uh, was cut off. Messiah was cut off in 30 A.D. Now, if the numbers don't add up in your mind, it's because um, the Hebrews used a lunar calendar, and it comes out a little less than 483 years. But, but using their figures, the figures found in Scripture, it works out to be exactly 483 years from the edict to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Lord Jesus in his death in April of 30 A.D. That part of the calendar is past. That's all history. But Daniel saw another period of seven years uh, future to him and still future to us in which um, the world would be gripped in some great 
titanic struggle. The power of man would be brought to an end. Man's rule on the earth would cease and the Lord would come again. Now this we describe as Daniel's 70th week, a period of seven years preceding the second coming of our Lord Jesus. Now it's about this time that uh, the book of Revelation is mostly preoccupied, this seven-year period. There are some events leading up to Daniel's 70th week, and there are some events afterward. But uh, the book of Revelation is primarily centered around that seven-year period. Now this morning we want to look at the seven seals, which I see as a preamble to this period, and I'll explain why uh, in a few moments. If you remember from chapters 4 and 5, Daniel was, or John was taken up into heaven. And uh, while he was there, he uh, was privileged to see the Lord or a symbolic representation of the Lord on a throne and arrayed around the throne various uh, angelic beings. And then in chapter 5, the Lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus himself, is proven because of his death to be worthy to open the scroll. John saw in the hand of the one who sat on the throne a great uh, papyrus roll, a scroll, sealed with seven seals. And uh, only the Lamb in all the universe had the credentials to break the seals and open the scroll. He had been proven worthy by his death on the cross. And as John saw, he, he took the scroll from the hand of the one who's on the throne. And in chapter 6, he begins to open the seals. Now, if you stop and think about the symbol for a moment, it becomes very clear what, what John was seeing. I think I had always pictured the seals as being broken sequentially and the scroll rolled uh, out a little bit at a time as the seals were broken. But if you stop and think for a moment, that's not what's happening at all. The seals seal the uh, sheet of papyrus, uh, kept it from unrolling, and uh, the scroll could only be unrolled as, the, as all the seals were broken. So it was necessary for the lamb to break all of the seals before the scroll could be opened, which leads me to believe that you do not have the opening of the scroll until chapter 8. After the seventh seal is broken, then the scroll is open, and then we are ushered into the period uh, that we know as Daniel's 70th week. All of the other events described in chapters 6 and 7 are preliminary to that uh, opening of the scroll. Now, what I think we have in the seals is a display or a statement of those principles and powers that work in history that bring man to his knees. Uh, this is a revelation of those things, the great movements in history, the way God works through the lives of individuals and uh, nations to bring man's rule to an end, to bring man to the end of himself, to bring him to an end of his pride and his haughtiness, as Isaiah puts it. And these dynamics are at work now, as well as during the Great Tribulation. Now let's look at uh, chapter 6, as the Lord begins to open the seals and unleash these great forces on the earth. The first four, as you know, are the four so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is not the BSU backfield, but uh, rather a revelation of those forces that, as I say, will bring man down. 
And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. Now, if you have a King James uh, translation, the translators have added a, a phrase, Come and see, as though these words were addressed to John. The best manuscripts have simply come. And the words are addressed not to John, but to the horseman. And it's as though, uh, as, the, as the seal is broken, the horseman appears before John's eyes at the command of one of the living creatures. And in verse 2, we read that John looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Well, what John saw was... Uh, a great uh, white horse, like uh, the great white horse Silver, and uh, mounted upon it a horseman who had a bow in his hand. Throughout all of the apocalyptic uh, literature, a bow is a symbol of military might. Uh, for example, in Hosea, uh, the Lord, through the prophet, predicts that he would bring Israel's power down by breaking their bow in the valley of Jezreel. It's a symbol for military power. And he had a crown which is a uh, symbol of one who has won. It's a victor's crown. And he had authority to conquer, and he went out conquering. In other words, his aim was to conquer, and uh, he affected it. He, he actually uh, he conquered. Now the question is, who is this horseman? What does he represent? Well, uh, throughout history, there have been various interpretations of this uh, figure. Some would say that uh, the horseman represents war and worldwide conquest. However, you'll see when we get to the second seal that the red horse, the second, uh, uh, as the second seal is opened, the red horse appears, and the red horse clearly represents warfare. So it would be redundant to say that the first horseman is warfare. Others have thought that uh, this is uh, a symbol of the Antichrist who would go out conquering. However, as we have seen, uh, in the book of Revelation, the book reveals things as they really are. And uh, uh, rather than, than show us the appearance of things, what things seem to be. And since the horseman here is described on a white horse, and throughout the book of Revelation, the, the uh, color white is a symbol of, of righteousness, perfect righteousness. This uh, could not be the Antichrist. It must be someone else or some other... Uh, it must symbolize something else. For myself, I believe this is a symbol of the worldwide proclamation of the gospel that will run concurrently with all the other powers that are at work during this time. It's what uh, Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, if you'd like to turn back to that passage, when he describes um, the, the powers that are at work both in his time throughout the period before his second coming. He says in verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, it is he shall, who shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations. And then the end shall come. 
I take this white horse then to symbolize the proclamation of the gospel. In uh, Revelation 19, you have a picture of the Lord himself riding on a white horse. And his name is called the Word of God. So uh, the internal evidence of the book itself suggests that this is, uh, this is not an evil power. It is the gospel. It's truth going forth to conquer. And truth does that, you know. Just the simple proclamation of the gospel has a powerful appeal to the heart of man. When it's ungarnished, unembellished, just uh, preached uh, with, uh, with courage and with confidence and, and lovingly, it has tremendous impact upon the hearts of, of men and women. It brings, brings down our pride. Uh, as Jesus put it in Luke in the passage parallel to Matthew 24, he describes the same sort of uh, occurrences. They will lay their hands on you, persecute you, deliver you up to synagogues and prisons. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. That's what, that's what the gospel does. It's a wisdom that no one can refute. Now, I don't think that Jesus had in mind that no one will be able to erect intellectual or rational arguments with which they can uh, stave off the truth. That's not what he's saying. People can argue strongly and convincingly against you. But... I think what the Lord is saying is that truth has its own witness. It penetrates the heart like a sword. And though people may, with their minds, stiff-arm God and fend Him off with their hearts, they know it's true. And therefore, when we go out and, and preach in sincerity and, and teach and witness to people, proclaim the truth as we have opportunities, we know that it will penetrate. People know that the gospel is true. Uh, a number of years ago, while I was in school, I was responsible for a day camping program in Dallas, Texas. And uh, we ran a summer camping program. And I uh, had a number of counselors that I was working with, none of whom uh, were Christians except one young woman. Lottie Dibert was her name. And uh, Lottie and I started a, a Bible study for the counselors that we had, a group of young men and women, mostly from Southern Methodist University. And, and as I say, none of them were believers, and we started this Bible study. And there was young, one young man in this, uh, in this group. His name was Henry Haswell, who just uh, gave me the gears from, the, from day one. He argued. Uh, he got upset. He challenged our right to, uh, to have a, a Bible study of this nature. He went to the uh, local secretary of the YMCA and, and tried to have, have the thing stopped. He just uh, fought us tooth and nail, and uh, practically every Bible study we had was a, was a struggle from the very beginning. And about uh, ten years later, after I'd moved to California, I got a letter from Henry. I saw his name up in the corner, and I couldn't imagine what he was doing writing me because he, he, he left me in a high huff at the end of the summer, just uh, very hostile toward me and, and everything I had said. And I, I tore open the letter. And in the letter was the report that he had since become a Christian. To make a good story even better, he married Lottie Dibert. And uh, I suppose they're living happily ever after. But, but in the letter, he made the point. He said, you know, all the time I sat in that Bible study, I knew it was true. I knew it was true. Now, that's, that's what John saw. 
the conquest of the gospel. We may mumble and fumble our way through, and we're not sure we say it very well. We may not be very adroit in our methods of evangelizing, but as we speak the truth in love, it penetrates, it conquers. Now, that's the, the first horse, the white horse. Then, in verse 3 and 4, the second seal is broken. When he, that is the lamb, broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. John uh, looks and he sees a red horse, a sorrel horse that appears. And he is given the authority to take peace from the earth. In other words, he releases the restraints which God has imposed upon uh, humanity. And men then are free to kill one another, and take life indiscriminately. And all of the brutality and the horror, the awfulness of, of war breaks out. Uh, for myself, war is, is one of the great indications of the fallenness of man. Uh, despite our attempts to glamorize it, there, there is nothing glamorous about war. Those of you that have been in combat know. Uh, it, it's, a, it's just a, another indication of man's inhumanity to man. And James makes it very clear that the root problem, the, the thing that causes warfare, is uh, the greed and uh, acquisitiveness of man. We want something that belongs to someone else. And because we love things more than people, we will take human life in order to acquire their possessions. Now, it's not that God himself sends war. He simply takes his hands off of mankind and he lets them go for one another's throats and, and slay one another. And this is a, apparently what is happening here. Uh, you, you see it from time to time in history, these, these bloody outbreaks of violence where governments are overthrown and, uh, and men, women, and children, innocent bystanders are slaughtered indiscriminately. And uh, he says this, this horseman has the power to release that sort, of, uh, that sort of violence. A great sword is given to him. Uh, as man becomes more sophisticated in his technology, he just uh, develops more refined ways to, to kill his, his, brother, his brothers and sisters. I uh, just heard this past week that Russia now has a, a nuclear device in the 100 megaton range, which, if detonated over Idaho, would decimate the population. It would flatten every tree, every building. There would not be one survivor in the entire state of Idaho, and uh, the ground would be rendered sterile for centuries. Now, that's the sort of thing that that our science and technology has led us to do. And uh, this is one of the forces which God permits to make His way through the human race in order to bring us to the end of ourselves. Nothing is quite as sobering as uh, to see man for what he really is, to see what he's capable of doing. It strips away our illusions about man and his goodness. And then in verse 5, the third seal is broken. When he, the lamb, broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. 
And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. He uh, looks up as he hears the command of the living creature, and he sees a black horse. And the horseman was carrying a pair of scales, which almost universally is a symbol of famine, food uh, measured out in small quantities. And then he hears a voice in the center of the four living creatures. If you recall, in chapter 4, the throne was in the center of the four living creatures, so this is the voice of God, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. A quart of wheat was the amount of wheat that would sustain a family for one day, and a denarius was a day's wage. So a laborer could work all day and make just, just barely make enough money to feed his family, bare subsistence level. And he could buy three quarts of barley, a bit more coarser, more coarse fare for the same amount of money. But he says, do not harm the oil and the wine. The luxuries of life are, are not uh, harmed. Now, this may well be a symbol for, uh, for inflation, where uh, the necessities of life are priced out of, out of reach, where it costs uh, eight to ten times the normal amount that you would uh, pay for a day's uh, food. And, uh, and yet the luxuries of life are untouched, where the rich are enriched, where the poor become more uh, poverty-stricken. It's interesting to me that the voice in the midst of the four creatures determines the price that is set for food. Uh, it's God who determines the economies that reign. Uh, economics has always been a mystery to me. I had a friend uh, with a degree in, in econ once, and I asked him to explain it to him, and he said he had four years of, of college training in economics, and he said, I can't. No one can. Nobody understands what's going on. And uh, it struck me today, as, or this week as we read through this, that uh, it is God who controls the laws of supply and, and demand. That's why it's such a mystery. Uh, that's why the supply-siders and the... Keynesians can, can argue ad infinitum and, and never come up with any satisfactory explanation for our economy. It's a great mystery because God behind the scenes determines these things. And by his working in history and in the weather and in men's uh, hearts, he, he determines uh, these, these things. And uh, this appears to describe symbolically famine and an inflationary economy where everyone struggles, finds it difficult to make ends meet. Uh, someone told me uh, a few months ago, a few weeks ago, that from 3500 B.C. to 1850, the world population increased to 1 billion. From 1850 to 1930, it doubled to 2 billion. From 1930 to 1950, it went to 3 billion. From 1950 to 1965, it went to 4 billion. It is now 4.5 billion. And uh, most people who understand these sorts of things say that by the year 2000, there will be 8 billion people on the face of the earth. And back about 1975, they reached the cross we reached the crossover point where we can no longer grow enough food to feed the world's population. Now, that's why I think people feel that, uh, as Bob Dylan puts it, uh, uh, the Titanic sails at dawn. We have a limited amount of time. 
there is a crisis that is coming on us. And then in verse 7, we read that he broke the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the li fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. Uh, literally a, a yellow-green horse. I have never seen a yellow-green horse. I think what he's trying to describe is a sick horse, a mangy uh, horse, perhaps with its bones uh, protruding. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. I don't know how to describe that uh, scene, whether death was on his horse and Hades was in his hearse, or uh, what we're supposed to see there. Uh, Chris Riddell said he envisioned uh, death on his horse and a great black hole following, because Hades is the place of departed spirits in Greek thought. Death means the end of physical life as we know it. Hades, the place of where the soul resides. And then we're told that authority was given to them, that is, to death and Hades, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, this is not warfare here. It's rather calamitous death. It's unexpected death, violent death that strikes people down at unexpected moments. He's describing uh, the, uh, an incident such as this where a wife kisses her husband goodbye in the morning just as she would every other morning and uh, as he's on his way to work he's brutally slain by some madman on the streets or he's killed in an automobile accident or a man goes to a doctor for a, a checkup an annual checkup and he discovers that he has a terminal disease it's this sort of thing. It's death that, that strikes us when we're most uh, uh, ill-equipped and unprepared for it. I think if, if John were writing today and if he saw this vision today, he would probably uh, quote the passage in, in Ezekiel in verse 8 in this way, to kill with the Saturday night special and with famine and with cancer and heart attack and drunk drivers. It's, it's that unexpected thing that just takes all the wind out of our sails and uh, brings us to the end of ourselves quickly. Where everything is going our way and then suddenly everything comes crashing down around us. Uh, years ago, I, I uh, dropped by the Overseas Crusade office in uh, Santa Clara, California, and they have an apartment over the office where missionaries stay for a period of time while they're in transit. And I happened to, to go up there for some reason, and there was a young couple staying in the apartment that I'd never met before. They were on their way out to the Philippines with overseas crusades. And uh, their little boy was lying on the sofa. And I said something about the child as, as I introduced myself. And uh, the father went over and picked up the child and put it in his arms. And he said, well, David, he said, this is, this is little Andrew. Little Andrew is, is a mongoloid boy, and we named him Andrew because he brought us to Jesus. And as they told the story, they had, had lived their whole lives to make money and to have fun. They were not Christians, and they lived for their boat and uh, their hang glider and their condominium at Lake Tahoe, and they skied and rock climbed and 
That was their whole life until Andrew came. And that was the great calamity that brought them to the end of, of themselves. As he said, this was one thing that I could not buy my way out of. There was no answer except God. And these, this, likewise, is one of those terrible, awful, calamitous events that strike us, that bring down our pride, bring us to the end of, of ourselves. And then in, chapter, in uh, verse 9, verses 9 through 11, we have the fifth seal. When he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, and here he means the altar of burnt offering, as, uh, as he would remember it from the temple. The souls underneath the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony about Jesus, which they had maintained. The blood of the sacrifice was poured out at the base of the altar. And this is where he see, sees the souls of these martyrs, those who had lost their lives because of the testimony about Jesus, which they had maintained or held, upheld. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, this doesn't sound like a very Christian prayer. It sounds very much like the so-called imprecatory psalms in, in the Old Testament where David and other psalmists uh, pray that God will, will avenge uh, eve, uh, right and, and put, uh, put down evil. Uh, but it is a Christian prayer. It's really a, a prayer of, of those who have been judged by a human court and are calling upon a higher court to overthrow the, the judgment. God is either true or He is not. And if He is holy and true, then He cannot let evil go on un, unabated and, and uh, permit man to rule on, on the earth and create so much heartache and pain. He has to do something. And they call upon him to act if he is just and true as, as he says he is. And uh, John says there was given to each of them a white robe. That is, they were personally vindicated. Their righteousness was established. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. That's a very interesting passage to me. It just indicates, again, God's sovereign control in history. There's a finite number of martyrs. And when the final number is in, then God will bring everything to a close. When Chester Bitterman gave up his life some weeks ago, this fine young Wycliffe translator whose life was taken, he was part of this number that uh, John sees must be taken before God's program is consummated. And the odd thing is that, that this itself is another one of these forces which God uses to bring down man's pride and haughtiness. When, uh, when people out in, in secular society see people who are willing to give up their lives for their faith, who, as Revelation put it, love not their lives unto death, are willing to die as the Lord did because of what they believe, it has a tremendous impact upon them. As Paul puts it in Philippians, when they see you standing side by side and unafraid, it's, a, it's an evident sign to them that God is for you. And throughout history, whenever men and women have given up their lives for the Lord Jesus, it has always resulted in a harvest of souls. Uh, a case in point, the five young men who went to their death in Ecuador 25 years ago. 
spear on, on uh, a beach by Aka Indians. And today, the, the Aka tribe is basically evangelized, and they're sending out from their own number missionaries to, uh, to other unreached tribes in Ecuador. And the widow of one of the women, one of the men who was slain, was one of the first to go back and, and preach the gospel to these people. The history of the church is full of this sort of thing. Whenever martyrdom has occurred, the world sat up and took notice. Um, there's one story that Eusebius recounts that took place uh, early in the period of the Roman Empire during the, uh, the reign of Vespasian. The uh, Roman legions marched into a little village and uh, announced that everyone had to worship Caesar. And they brought out a little statue of Caesar. And uh, the Christians refused to bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. And so they marched them down by the riverside, and they took their little statue along with them. It's the dead of winter. And they put their statue up, and they said, Now, if you'll just fall down and worship Caesar, say, Caesar is Lord, we'll release you to your homes. And they refused to, to worship. And so they were stripped and forced to march out into the uh, river, men, women, and, and children, and to stand uh, in the water up to their necks while the parents held the children. And they were told, if you'll, if you'll just uh, come out of the water and worship at Caesar's shrine, we'll let you go home. But they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't leave. And they clustered in a little group, and they sang to each other, and they held each other up, and they held each other in their arms until one by one they began to lapse into unconsciousness and slide into the water. And Eusebius tells us that one of the tough old Roman soldiers standing there stripped off his armor and walked out into the river with them and joined that, that band. And one by one, other of the Roman soldiers made their way out into the river. They give up their lives with these, with these Christians. That's the effect, you see that this sort of stand can have upon those that are around us. And then, finally, in verses 12 through 17, we come to the sixth seal. And John says, There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Then the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Isn't that an odd Statement, the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? John sees a great cosmic shaking, an earthquake, and the sun becomes black, the moon becomes like blood. The stars fall out of the sky, and the mountains and islands are moved. Now the question we have to ask is, is this literal? Or is it symbolic? Will there be a time in the future when the sun will literally become dark and the stars will fall out of the sky and the mountains will move? Or is this simply a symbol of something else? Well, for myself, I think it's symbolic. You may disagree with me, 
please don't be mad at me. You can disagree if you like. But uh, I think these, this description that John sees is symbolic of a great shaking within those things that everyone has confidence in today. There are several reasons I think so. The book of Revelation is symbolic almost throughout. And I believe these symbols are, are not to be taken literally any more than the horsemen are. The horsemen are not literally riding through the heavens. They represent forces at work in society. Secondly, this uh, particular way of describing the upset of everything that people count upon is, uh, is found quite frequently in apocalyptic literature, not only in Scripture but outside of it. Belongs to a common stock of words and ideas that you find in the literature of, of the ancient world. For example, in Isaiah 13, Isaiah predicts the fall of Babylon. And uh, he says that when Babylon falls, the sun will become dark, the stars will fall out of the sky, the moon will become as blood. And uh, we know when that happened. It happened back in 539 when the Medes overran uh, Babylonia. And uh, the stars did not fall out of the sky. The sun did not become red. That's just a Semitic way of, of describing the dissolution and the breakup of everything that people normally count upon. The uh, ancients lived by the stars. That's the way they navigated their ships. Uh, the moon determined their calendar. The sun came up every morning. Uh, it was something reliable, dependable. Uh, mountains did not move. As a matter of fact, to move mountains was a, a, an idiom for doing something that's impossible. That's what Jesus means when he says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. That's a, it was a common idiom. It's found in the Talmud. The, uh, the Talmud describes certain rabbis who could move mountains. They were so powerful. What he's talking about is a, is a breakup of all of the institutions in society that we feel are reliable that we count upon. Marriage, for one thing. When marriages start to break apart uh, on a large scale, and uh, when uh, institutions, banking institutions, fail, educational institutions begin to fail, and uh, governments are overthrown, this uh, creates a situation that people can't cope with. Uh, the stock market crashes, and so they leap out of windows. They lose their entire life savings in one day. It's that kind of sudden, cataclysmic overthrow of, of things that really matter, things we can count upon. When uh, law and order ceases to exist, when there are no, there's no authority, when anarchy and chaos reigns, as it often does when these uh, particularly countries in the third world are overthrown and and, and blood flows in, in the streets. It's this sort of thing. And John tells us that the result is that the kings of the earth and the great men and commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and, and free man will hide themselves in the caves. The kings here represent the proud uh, leaders of that time, those who would bend the knee to, to no one. And... Uh, the great men are the influential people of their time and ours, the captains of industry, the leaders of state, and the strong and commanders like George Patton and Alexander Haig, military men that are tough and resourceful. And we say these are the people we can 
rely upon. But John's point is that when this great breakup begins to occur and life becomes and uh, and uh, is filled with anarchy and chaos and all the things that we normally count upon for security are gone, then the strongest men in the world run for, for cover. They panic and they look for a place to hide. A number of years ago, uh, I saw this in a in a newspaper in California. It's very striking. It's during the time when John Kennedy and Richard Nixon were running for office. He says, "Now let's be sure of one thing. No matter whom we elect and send to Washington, whether it's John Kennedy, Dick Nixon, or Barry Goldwater, or whoever, remember one thing: they'll fail us." Not because they're Democrats or Republicans, but because they're people. They'll fail us. There's no defense against the horsemen. We have no remedy for them down here on earth. Now, this is not to speak slightingly of the great men of the world today. But no matter where you put them, they can't help you. They'll do the best they can, but they are simply incapable of doing such a big job. And we won't find adequate help from so-called international law or soldiers or weapons, however developed, or conferences. The scientists can't help you. Help you. Cultural influences can't help you. Help you. None of them helps when you've been killed, starved, gassed, burned, shot down, hewed in pieces, or kicked into quicklime. Let's remember that you'll never get any ultimate help except from God. And that's what all of these forces do, you see. They end man's rule. They bring him to the end of himself. They show him that he cannot be God. They teach him that all through his life he's been going about it the wrong way. He's been trying hard to solve the problems that, that plague mankind and his technology and, and his art, his crafts are, are truly astounding, but they cannot really solve the problems that plague us. Men's like uh, the sorcerer's, uh, sorcerer's Apprentice who uh, starts playing around with the things that belong to the magician and, and he unleashes forces that he has no power over. And then in his pride he thinks that uh, he can then come up with some solution to the problem that he himself has, has caused. But he always turns up empty-handed and inadequate and starts looking for a solution. I remember when I was a boy back in Texas, my father sent me out one day to change a wheel on a mower. And uh, I uh, took along some tools, and I went to work on the thing. And you know, The nut was recessed, so I found the right socket, and I began to work on the thing, and, and it would not break loose. So I got some uh, oil and put it on the end of the axle and pounded on that and couldn't get it loose. And finally I got a big piece of pipe and, and put it on the end of the, uh, of the ratchet, and put all the pressure I could on it, and it just would not yield. And I, by that time, I was getting a little emotionally involved with the, uh, with the uh, mower, and I, I, I was swearing at the top of my lungs and kicking it. And uh, my father came out and stood on the back porch for a minute and watched me. And uh, then he said rather quietly, Son, as I recall, the uh, nuts on this side of the mower have a left-handed thread. And... Uh, I was ready to listen at that point. He let me stand there and beat my brains out for about 15 minutes until I really came to the end of myself. And then he told me the way out.
And you see, this, this is the way the Lord operates. He lets man have his way. If, if we really want to go our own way, he'll, he'll let us. But uh, the results always come home. And we begin to discover how empty we are, how hollow, how impotent, how much we need God. As Isaiah puts it, all of these things are directed against the pride and the haughtiness of man. That's the problem. That's the real trouble with this world. You see, that's why education and social advance and technology, somehow we, we, we have the feeling that the next president we elect is going to once for all put down violence and crime. and The next scientific breakthrough is going to clear up our atmosphere and make the world a wonderful place to live in. Or the next pay raise we get will push us over the edge of anxiety, you know, and then we'll be peaceful and, and quiet at ease, but it just never works. And so God lets us go on our foolish way and wreak havoc, leave a trail of debris wherever we go. He lets us do it because He wants us to come to Himself. And finally, when we're desperate, we, we see that He's been there all the time waiting for us to respond to Him. As Jesus put it, this world passes away in all its passions. But he who does the will of God abides forever. See, all of these uh, terrible things that break upon us are designed to bring down our own little kingdom that we've built for ourselves. Everything passes away. Everything we love, everything we've based our life upon, everything we've banked on. The world passes away in all of its lusts. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, what is it this morning that you're counting upon? If you're counting on your money or your family background or your education or your personality or your physical strength or your retirement plan and your cottage in the, your cabin in the wilderness where you're going to retire one of these days or your automobile or whatever it may be, it's all going to pass away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> and would you, in the, just in your own heart, it's really no one's business right now but the Lord's, will you lay bare your heart to Him? Will you reveal to Him the things that you've been counting on, those personal assets and the things that, with which you've displaced Him and His love. He knows about them anyway. And will you open up your heart to Him? If you've never done so before, this is an opportunity for you to come to know the one who came to solve the problems of life to give us the strength and resources for facing anything we have to go through in life. He wants to be yours. Father, thank you for for these um, words of truth 
in, in your word. And we have to thank you that you unleash upon us these forces at times to save us from ourselves and deliver us from our folly. We want you to come into our lives and reign and rule there. Be our Lord. Make us what we know we ought to be and what our hearts long to be. Now, as the quartet sings this final hymn, would you continue to keep your heads bowed and your hearts open before the Lord?